Hello, everyone, and welcome uh, once again to another of our lockdown conversations. Uh, my name is Brian Key. I'm Minister of Sandy Street uh, Presbyterian Church in Newry, uh, and I'm uh, joined once again by my, I'm going to call you co-host, Jamie. Is that oh, all right? Well, <laughs> what an illustrious title. Uh, thanks for Brian. My co-host, Jamie McGuire. Uh, yes, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Minister of Jarrah's Pass and Kings Mills Presbyterian Churches within the Newry Presbytery as well. Uh, folks, we, we've got a special uh, edition this evening. Um, rather than uh, just having to listen to me and Jamie prattle on for uh, a long time, uh, we, we've brought along someone else for you to listen to um, who will be much more entertaining than us. Uh, and we're, we're delighted to welcome uh, our colleague in presbytery, uh, the Reverend Dr. Mark Wilson. <laughs> Well, thank, thank you, Brian. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, not used to hearing myself described as that. I told the children that I would only answer to Dr. Wilson for a week after I heard that I'd passed my exams, but they didn't bother. So thank you. Um, I'm Minister of Cromorford Towns and Queen's Pass, for anybody who doesn't know me. Uh, and, uh, and I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's, well, thanks for just coming great on. to have another bearded individual uh, joining us for the conversation. All the best people are wearing them. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mark, you, you have recently become Dr. Wilson, isn't that correct? I have indeed. Um, about about two weeks ago, I got the the news that my my thesis had been approved and accepted, and I submitted my Herbert copies, received the notification that I was qualified as a doctor of philosophy. So I was very I was very happy. It was a long journey, and. Um, and genuinely the most difficult thing I've ever done academically. Very hard. Well, congratulations on that. It's a, it's a fantastic Absolutely. achievement. Um, for completing a PhD is, uh, is one of those things that um, only the best do. <laughs> Doing a part-time is great crack. Now. <laughs> Being a minister, you've got copious amounts of free time. So, you know, it, 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 was, it was simple. You could just... Do, yeah. do, do it in your spare time. But it was, it, was, it was a tremendously interesting thing. It was a great thing to do, and I'm very glad that I've done it. Um, and, uh, and I hope that there will be a graduation sometime. Well, just before that, Mark, we're going to try and make you famous now, because this is your, <laughs> your first interview as a proper doctor. <laughs> oh, that's all, well, that's true. Both of our wives will be listening to this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I appeared on Destination Yuri once, and the presenter's wife and his cat were watching. So I'm used, to, I'm used to, I'm used to mass communication. Well, Mark, before we begin, you, you better tell us what your uh, PhD was in. I, I decided I was going to look at the history of Presbyterianism in the early part of the 20th century. So the title is the uh, Presbyterian Church in Ireland: Ulster Unionism and the Establishment of Northern Ireland. 1905 to 1947, which is a tremendously turbulent time of history. Uh, 1905 to 1947 includes the Ulster Crisis, the First World War, the British Civil War that's miscalled the Anglo-Irish War, the Irish Civil War, uh, continuous troubles, the Second World War, and uh, the loss of the British Empire and uh, social revolutions uh, uh, plenty. So it's a, it's a really turbulent and uh, event-filled period of, of history, which we still live with. We still live with the consequences, not just in uh, a social and civil sense. We still live with the consequences of that time in the church. The church, Presbyterian Church in Ireland, is the way it is 
because of the events that took place during that period. So that's 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 why I wanted to look at it. I'm, I'm interested in contemporary questions as well as historical ones. Well, that, that's fascinating because um, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but when I was going through uh, the college and, and learning about Irish Presbyterian history, um, you know, was very, very little on the 20th century. And even yeah. if you go to Irish Presbyterian history books, you and you look at them, you know, we'll get a whole lot about the establishment of uh, Presbyterianism in Ulster, the first presbytery and so on, and all that up to the 19th century and the subscription crisis and various things that happened, the establishment of uh, Presbyterian education and things. But then basically after, you know, 1859, yeah. not much happens apparently. Uh, and it hasn't happened, uh, not much has happened since. Uh, we reached the high point in 1859 and then kind of history ends. Uh, well, yes, I think, I think, I think that's, that, that's a fair summary of most Presbyterian history books. If you look, if you look at, at Finlay Holmes' work, you wouldn't know that there had been any dispute or event in the 20th century because Finlay Holmes' work is meant to, to unify Presbyterians and Presbyterians were anything but unified at that stage. There were there was crisis following crisis dispute following dispute and the church um, in many ways lost its theological and its social way at that time and it had been really focused on a presbyterian interpretation of the christian religion and on the promotion of that view and on the uh, establishment of a presbyterian community and on theological orthodoxy and then at the beginning of the 20th century, all seemed well. By 1947, it had all fallen to bits. And the church was, in many ways, a shadow of what it had been. So, so Mark, just to begin with, give us a snapshot of, of you know, where was uh, Irish Presbyterianism uh, 1900, uh, run up? I know your, your period's 1905. Yeah. Oh, 1900, I reckon. Uh, was... At the beginning of the 20th century, this was the Edwardian era, not right? Um, we'd come out, we've had, we'd had the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution, Britain had a world empire, um, we'd had, uh, you know, the Queen Victoria's reign and, and, and everything, you know, but, but at the same point, at, at, when we hit 1900, the British empire was on its decline. America had overtaken Britain as the largest economic power in the world. Germany was fast catching up industrially. Um, with Britain, where was Irish Presbyterianism and all this vast? Well, you, the way you have to understand Irish Presbyterianism now, as well as in the past, is that is that we are a small minority. We're a small minority in the United Kingdom, and we're a small minority in Ireland. So our position is always one of a minority that is potentially going to be oppressed. So uh, after the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland, in particular in 1870, Irish Presbyterianism felt that the Union was the context in which they were safe and prosperous. And this had been uh, enhanced, this idea had been enhanced by the fact that the business people, the buccaneer capitalists who got rich in Belfast at the end, in the middle and later in the 18th century, were an awful lot of them Presbyterians. So there was a newly rich Presbyterian middle class, very confident, very forward-looking in many ways, connected to uh, the British Empire, to America, uh, with lots of connections in, in high society and in middle class life in, in England. 
Uh, and the Presbyterian Church was much more confident at the beginning of the 20th century than it had ever been. It was confident of its place in the United Kingdom. It was confident in its religious outlook. It was confident in its mission, both socially and religiously. And uh, the issue of the union seemed to have been settled because the House of Lords was never going to allow a Home Rule Bill to come onto the statute books. And therefore there was no prospect of Home Rule. So it was a stable situation in which the Presbyterian Church was very confident of its place and was growing in influence. And that, 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 that kept on being the case up until the beginning of the First World War. Uh, you, you, you say my... Uh... Uh, Irish Presbyterian was confident, Mark, in its in its theology. Yeah, uh, lots of people would look at that kind of era and say, you know, the, the rot had had set in at that point. Liberalism was there, um, the confident Victorian evangelicalism was on the wane. Uh, where where was Irish Presbyterianism theologically at that point? Well, Irish Presbyterianism was a Reformed church at that point. It was a Presbyterian church more than, a, than an evangelical one. And whenever the rot set in, it was rot from two, two ends. There was an unthinking fundamentalism coming in from America, and there was a, a self-consciously intellectual modernism coming in mostly from Germany. And uh, the centre was still holding at the beginning of the 20th century. We were still a Reformed church. We were still a Presbyterian church. The confession and the standards were still at the centre of church life in a way that they haven't been for the past 100 years. That's, that's really interesting. Um, obviously, things developed very quickly at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, uh, President, you're telling us was confident. It was confident in who it was. Yeah, it was absolutely. And then all of a sudden, the Home Rule Bill does come, uh, and the, you know Gladstones or uh, the Liberal government do decide for Home Rule. What happens then? It, it's 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 all about parliamentary arithmetic. Um, the House of Lords veto was ended which meant that a majority in the House of Commons could push through a Home Rule Bill in a way that they couldn't. And uh, the Liberal leader, um, in a speech to his constituency after polling had almost finished, announced that in order to woo the Irish Parliamentary Party, his party would uh, introduce Irish Home Rule. And the heart of the Ulster crisis, the heart of the theological approach to the Ulster crisis the Presbyterian Church took, was that that was an unconstitutional abuse of parliamentary power. So by rebelling against that unconstitutional use of parliamentary power, they weren't rebelling against the state and they could do it theologically under their understanding of the Bible and subject to the provisions of the confession. So um, they, they approached the Ulster crisis very confidently. They approached it um, confident of being heard by the Ulster Unionist movement and confident of their moral influence over Presbyterians. And uh, th that confidence kept on being a distinctive of Irish Presbyterianism up until about 1919. Uh, they, they, they approached the First World War, we may talk about that later, in a very, in a very, in a very patriotic way. And they told their people to do things which in hindsight from 1919 on, they regretted doing. 
But before the war, during the Ulster crisis, it was, again, a very confident, a very outward-looking um, church. However, during the Ulster crisis, um, the ruling eldership did some things which took control of the apparatus of the church from the teaching eldership. So they effectively subverted the General Assembly in order to bring the church into alignment with Ulster Unionism. Uh, lots of Presbyterian ministers didn't like the idea of, they didn't buy into this idea of uh, an unconstitutional use of parliamentary power justifying rebellion, but the ruling eldership did. So uh, they they effectively took control of the church for uh, a period of time, ruled the church very solidly and behind unionism in a way that had never associated with any political ideology before and then um, and then handed control back to the institutions of the church having having shaped it to their will um, see that, that's interesting mark because uh, you know if, if you go back to the 19th century um, you had some particular you know large figures in, in Irish Presbyterian life who were who, who were home rulers yeah Isaac Nelson would be a, a, a perfect example of that. Um, but at this point, are, are basically, you're saying that everything was funneled into a unionist perspective. Well, there, there were home rulers in the Presbyterian Church, there's no question of it, but they were a small minority. They were always a small minority. There was um, a professor from McGee became effectively the head of the Irish civil service. He was uh, a very senior civil servant. Uh, and he... Um, he was a liberal and a home ruler. His brother-in-law was Armour of Balamani, who you've probably heard of, um, who was a liberal and a home ruler. There were quite a number of ministers who were liberals and home rulers. And there were a few tenant farmers, a few farmers in North Antrim who were also home rulers in a, in a sort of radical way. There were, there were radicals rather than home rulers. They adopted home rule because they were were radical in their politics, but almost everybody who was a Presbyterian at the beginning of the 20th century, other than a small minority of ministers, for whatever reason, were unionists. And um, and what happened was that the temperance movement had a massive explosion in 1910-1911 uh, because there was an organisation called Catch My Pal founded, which attracted tens possibly hundreds of thousands of members. And uh, the temperance, the total abstinence movement took control of the institutions of the church and elected a moderator who was determined to tie the church's political influence to total abstinence. So he was willing to countenance support for unionism, but only if unionism committed itself to essentially the prohibition of alcoholic liquor. And uh, certain certain numbers, certain members of the of the ruling eldership, led by a man called Thomas Sinclair, who was the dominant figure in Irish Presbyterianism at the end of the nineteenth, beginning of the twentieth century, they decided that this wasn't on, and they took the matter out of the hands of the General Assembly. Effectively, they organised a conference in Belfast of uh, Presbyterian men attended by fifty or sixty thousand Presbyterian men which threw the church behind, um, behind unionism and then presented the conclusions of that conference to the General Assembly the next year, 
where it was passed um, overwhelmingly. So they took the whole matter out of the hands of the General Assembly and, uh, and subverted its institutions. Does that man Sinclair, is, is, does he have a plaque in uh, assembly buildings? I think he has. A, I think he has a window. One of the window. One of the windows in the assembly hall is a memorial to him. He was a. He was a. He was a. He was a ship owner and a large scale wholesale grocer. Um, he, he he built. His father built uh, built Dunkern Church as a gift to the congregation. And Sinclair Siemens Church is, uh, it, it's it was built as a memorial to his uncle John. Oh. Uh, so he was he was a he was a very very uh, a very substantial figure in uh, in the church. If you go to um, oh, um, is it King? If you go to one of the churches that Nigel Reed has, the one that isn't Mount Morris, I can't remember which it is. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Me? Oh, yeah. the other one. Um, it's it's. Uh, there's 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 a gravestone in the in the churchyard there to a woman called Edith Sinclair Merton, and if the gravestone is almost obscured, but she's described as the Reverend Edith Sinclair Merton. She was a niece of Thomas Sinclair, and she was the first Irish Presbyterian female minister, or the first minister ordained from Irish Presbyterianism in 1931. The first minister in any. Of the historic Presbyterian churches, and she's buried in buried uh, in County Armagh. Yeah, and so wow. in Tully Allen, that's right. Yes, in Tully Allen, and she was a niece of Thomas Sinclair. He was he was uniquely um, influential. In 1904, there was a movement to make him moderator of the General Assembly. There was a speech made in 1917 to the General Assembly in which uh, the moderator from 1903 1904 said that the only reason that Sinclair wasn't moderator was that he refused to stand. Are there any other instances of, of a ruling elder as moderator of the General Assembly? Well, yes, there's a Scottish, there's a Scottish uh, precedent from the 16th century. The, 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 a Scottish ruling elder moderated the Scottish General Assembly in the 16th century. So there's a precedent for that. Um, but never in PCI? In PCI, there's never been a moderator of the General Assembly, but there have been moderators of synods in the 1920s. So the Synod of, New York, of, of Armand Monaghan, the Synod of Derry and Donegal, um, the Synod, Synod of Oma, Oma and the Synod of Antrim, all had ruling elders moderating those courts during the the twentieth century, and uh, that, that that only that was only stopped in PCI in 1948. 7, 1948, okay. when that precedent from the Church of Scotland was overturned. This is this is fascinating, um, and that that idea of um, ruling elders sort of uh, taking over, as as I think you've said, the the, the General Assembly and, and and the PCI at that time uh, puts to bed any notion that uh, you know, clericalism rules. Um, I think well, that's, uh, that's very, very interesting. Well, I think, I think the thing is that the ruling elders, eldership was, um, was subordinated to the, uh, the teaching eldership in the 1940s and 50s. Professor John Berkeley, who you may have, you may have read some of the stuff, mm -hmm. John Berkeley dedicated the last part of his career to 
promoting a view of the eldership and the Presbyterian ministry in particular, which was based on the works of Archbishop Usher. Um, yeah. And it was his aim was to create an understanding of the Presbyterian ministry, which was acceptable to the Church of Ireland in order to facilitate union with the Church of Ireland. Wow. Um, the General Assembly of the Church has accurately declared itself in favour of union with the Church of Ireland. It did it in the 30s, and it's never been overturned. No way. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> That's, that's so the only the only the only reason that the Presbyterian Church and the Church of Ireland didn't unite was that the Church of Ireland rejected our understanding of the ministry, and they broke off they broke off talks, and they still do because they wouldn't recognise our ordination, and they still do because they don't recognise our ordination absolutely, and and that's 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 part of the the Irish understanding of the eldership where there's where, where the teaching eldership and the ruling eldership is. Is one office divided only by function, not by order or office, which is um, especially obnoxious to them. But Berkeley, Berkeley dedicated his life. He wrote a master's thesis, which is available at Queens, which is an argument for bishop for for bishops and presbytery, as he called it. Mm. And he then self-published a sort of cut-down version of that thesis as a history of the eldership in Irish Presbyterianism, which is again uh, he doesn't mention what he's doing. But it's an argument for uh, understanding of the teaching eldership, which would be acceptable to the Church of Ireland, and that's what he did. So that was that was that was a mainstream thing in the fifties and sixties. Wow! Wow! Um, this is this is just a, a fantastic conversation. I'm really enjoying this. Um, I, I want to uh, bring us back a little bit back to the. Um, the, the, the temperance movement, uh, the total abstinence movement, which you've touched on, and and you've given us one uh, local connection, Mary yeah. Presbytery, yeah. through um, the, the Reverend Sinclair. Um, you'd mentioned another connection though before we started recording, a man called Robert Patterson. Yeah. Well, Thomas Sinclair was unusual in that he wasn't really a temperance campaigner. He was an evangelical. He was. Uh, uh, Orthodox Evangelical Presbyterian, as, as they would have existed then, really unusual. He wasn't a temperance campaigner because um, temperance, or actually total abstinence, was a really powerful presence in the church at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, the church in the, church in the 19th century hadn't really been big into total abstinence. Uh, they used to, there's, there, there are... Um, there are records in existence about the provisions which had been bought for an ordination in Bally Bay, and they bought enough drink to float a boat uh, for 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 the for the uh, the festivities afterwards. So the Presbyterian Church in Ireland was not. Um, I, I really not, hope the Reverend Clinton is listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, can I just jump in there one second and and say, um, can, can you give us a wee bit more of the history of this in terms of temperance uh, versus total abstinence? What what was originally temperance all about, uh, and how did it then develop into total abstinence? Okay, in public, all Christians are dedicated to the virtue of temperance, which is that um, that the use of anything should be moderate and restrained. So the use of alcohol, while permitted, is 
is to be restrained and moderate. And that's temperance. They, they promote uh, temperate use of alcohol. Um, total abstinence is what, what, it, what it says. Um, it promotes a view of alcohol that it can never be used. It's always wrong. I have a book by a ruling elder in a North Belfast um, congregation called The Bible, a Total Abstinence Book. Jesus Christ, a total abstainer, which is an ingenious argument, given what we read about the wedding at Cana. But uh, that was the position that they took. They took the position that the Bible forbade the use of alcohol, and that uh, and that anyone who who used, produced, sold, was in any way involved in the in the trade in alcohol should be effectively excommunicated. That their their ultimate aim in the church was to refuse any money from anyone involved in any aspect of the trade in alcohol. And that would, of course, mean that they were no longer full communicant members, wouldn't have their place in the church, couldn't be elders, um, couldn't be full members of the church. So that was their that was their 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 object in the church. And they they became really strong at the end of the 19th century. Uh, uh, they had there had been lots of temperance movements in the church before, but a total abstinence movement became really strong in the church at the beginning, late 19th, early 20th century. And they were part of a wider movement in the world. And as you know, prohibition came in in the United States uh, in the second decade of the 20th century. There were prohibition movements here. Um, in 1913, the government introduced uh, an act in Scotland to appease people who might otherwise support Austrian Unionism, uh, they introduced an act which allowed people to have local referendums to ban the sale of alcohol in their local areas. And that was that was one of the things that the, the total abstinence movement here in Ireland really wanted to be brought in. Their object was to have, have local option, and they stood local option candidates in general elections, and they argued for it and demanded that it should be done, but it never came about. They were especially strong here in Armagh. Um, the minister of what was then called Third Armagh, now called the Mall, was a man called Robert Patterson, as you say, Jimmy, yes. from, from White Cross. He was from White Cross, but he was raised by his uncle and aunt down in County Dublin. And he went to, he went, I think, to St Andrews College in Bray, and then he went to TCD, and became minister in Third Armagh. And he was really influenced by one of the local priests called Sheeran. His, uh, Patterson's manse wasn't where the Mal's manse is now. It was in what's called the Seven Houses in Armagh. Um, there's a, there's an accountant called Noah Cons in it now. And it was very close to the parochial house. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church had a very strong total abstinence movement, which really influenced uh, influenced um, Patterson, and he came up with the genius idea of making recruitment to his organisation a sort of competition. So people were meant to catch their pals, they were meant to bring their friends to, to sign the pledge. And in the peculiar social conditions of the early 20th century, this was astonishingly successful. Tens, um, possibly hundreds of thousands of members that spread all over the place. It spread to Scotland and to America and to Holland and um, and to Australia. That some of the last of the total of the of the clubs were in Tasmania. Whenever I was looking at it, I lived in hope that I would find some 
catch my pal from staggering on in Tasmania. But the only the only catch my pal I can find is a snooker club in Dunbury, which has a bar, which okay. is really, um, <laughs> it, 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 it is actually a descendant of the same organization, but they decided at some stage that they weren't a temperance organization. <laughs> But this was this was a re- this was a real mass movement, and tens of thousands, certainly tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of members, very large numbers of Presbyterians were committing themselves to a radical opposition to the seal use manufacture of alcohol, and it was a it was a real mass movement. Wow, that's interesting. I I have uh, I have seen uh, record books from here in in Jarris Pass. Um, old record books of people who have signed a, a pledge to be yeah. absent um, Absolutely. alcohol. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a big thing. Um, and uh, he also was an orangeman, although he was very much influenced by, the, by his Roman Catholic friends. Mm. He was an orangeman, and um, there are total abstinence orange lodges dotted through the country. Yes. They, they used to be much more common than they are now, but they were, they were, they were, founded at the time under the influence of Catch My Pal. So uh, Patterson, Patterson boasted that the Orange Order was becoming one mighty total abstinence organization. And um, it's possible that it wasn't uh, it wasn't as successful not everywhere as it was in Armagh. Yeah, okay. But uh, yeah. that's that's what he that's what he said. That, that's where those total abstinence lodges come from. Wow. Um Move us on a, a wee bit, then, uh, Mark, through the, um, the the beginning of the twentieth century. Obviously, at, at the at the time in which you're writing about, um, there are two world wars which loom mm. large over Absolutely. not only Ulster but world yeah. uh, history. So, so what impact? Um, w- what was going on in the Presbyterian Church at that time? Yeah. Have you ever seen the Presbyterian Rule of Honor? Presbyterian Rule of Honor is a book which allegedly all the Presbyterians who served in the First World War are listed. Uh, and it's a, it, it's, it's a very large yeah. book. Okay. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's available in various places, but it's mostly, it's mostly people see it in the, in the historical society. There are a number of people missing from that. Uh, and the 35 people who are not listed on the Presbyterian Rule of Honour are not listed on the Presbyterian Rule of Honour because they were fighting for the Germans. Uh, Irish Presbyterians fought on both sides in the Great War. Um, and I'll tell, you how, I'll tell you how it came about. The Irish Presbyterian Church had a Jewish mission in Hamburg. And in Hamburg, Hamburg was a free city. Uh, and in Hamburg, if you were going to have a church and your weddings and baptisms were going to be recognised for civil purposes, you had to either be recognised by the Senate of Hamburg or be a fully functioning part of a foreign church. And the Irish Presbyterian Jewish Mission couldn't get recognised by the Senate of Hamburg, so it was a constituent congregation of the Presbytery of Belfast. And 35 people from the Irish Presbyterian congregation in Hamburg fought in the German army in the First World War. So we fought on both sides. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I couldn't believe it whenever I saw it, but it's true, and it's it's verifiably true. <laughs> uh, wow! And the Irish Presbyterian Mission in in Hamburg, they were cut off from from funds from here, so they made their living by treating German soldiers in their mission hospital. 
so the Irish Presbyterian mission in Hamburg was maintained by funds from the German army throughout the First World War. And it, it, was, a big, it was a big thing. And it was a, it was a big thing. And the Jewish missions are really interesting. I think, I think the, the church is Tully Carnot is named the Arnold Frank Memorial Church. Um, it's, it's not a very prepossessing building, but Arnold Frank was a Jewish um, convert. He was Hungarian, and he, he converted to Christianity. He became a minister of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, and he became the prime mover of the Hamburg Mission. He wrote, he was the editor of a, a magazine called Zion's Friend, which had a massive circulation in Germany and Central Europe before the First World War. It's a, it is genuinely fascinating, a very, very interesting aspect of our history. But the, the thing the thing I did like was that the, the, we fought on both sides. That's, uh, yeah, wow. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, I, I, I want you to, to talk about the Second World War, um, but before we, we move on to that, after the, the First World War, um, maybe one of the things of the early 20th century that a lot of people uh, still in PCI are aware of yeah. is the, the Davy Heresy Trial. Yeah. Um, c- can you tell us about that? Can you give us some of the background and, and tell us what impact that's had on the PCI? Absolutely. Well, in the First World War, the Presbyterian Church took a really hyper-patriotic view and ministers pressurized young men into enlisting and they really pressurized them. And they came up with a, a view of the war that uh, the war was a Christian war, that Germany had corrupted Christianity through modernist thought and that the, uh, the war was, among other things, a war of Orthodox Christianity against distorted Christianity. And they really pressurized people into, into enlisting. They pressurized people into supporting the British state. Uh, they preached sermons demo- uh, comparing the sacrifice of Presbyterians in the First World War to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And not, not joking. Uh, Amy Carmichael, who you may have heard of, um, she was, among other things, a poet. She wrote uh, poems comparing, again, explicitly the sacrifice of Presbyterians in the war to the sacrifice of Christ. And they came up with an idea that because the sacrifice of Presbyterians in the war was a perfect sacrifice, which was in conscious imitation of Christ's sacrifice, that that sacrifice would win great blessing for the church. And in 1919-1920, they found that that wasn't the case, that instead what was happening was that Belfast was experiencing a depression, that people were... uh, People were broke. Presbyterian ministers were broke because inflation had been very high during the war. War workers had been paid and their wages had increased in proportion to inflation. But Presbyterian ministers had not. So Presbyterian ministers who perhaps hadn't had a pay raise for five years found themselves with a real income of about half what they would have had before before the the Great War. And there was a real crisis of conscience of, of of um, a real crisis in the church about its mission, that they had been so mistaken in the Great War that the sacrifice of Presbyterians in the war had not been rewarded in the way they thought it would be. There was no revival coming in the church. And uh, they had a real crisis uh, in the church about what the church's mission was and what the church should do in this new world. And into that came uh, the sort of revival that they didn't really want um, 
a really hot fundamentalist revival, which we, we associate with W.P. Nicholson, yeah. Um, yeah. which had an astonishingly disruptive uh, influence in the church. You don't hear very much about the influence of the of that revival in the Presbyterian church, specifically because it was extremely negative and it caused a lot of dissension, a lot of difficulty and a lot of trouble in the church. Uh, and it meant that lots of fundamentalists, lots of people who didn't think very carefully about theology, took up the sort of bare bones of fundamentalist theology that they were hearing Nicholson preach. And they really were pressing against um, against any kind. They were more anti-intellectual than they were anti-modernist. They're really pressing against anybody who thought or said things that were not in keeping with the fundamentalist interpretation of Christianity. And they cast about for a, for a victim. They tried to uh, they tried to victimize certain other people in the Presbytery of Belfast who they thought were opposed to them. And they settled on Davy because Davy had written some books which were meant for a popular audience. And all the other ones were writing academic books that were only read by other ministers. Nobody cared. But Davy tried to popularize his theology and tried to sell books, tried to get books into the hands of ruling elders and Presbyterian people. And this brought him to the attention of the fundamentalists. And that's why he was the object of their anger. It wasn't because he was a brilliant scholar. He wasn't. Um, Davy never, Davy, Davy had undergraduate degrees. He had no postgraduate degrees. And you see him, he's always, he's always in doctoral robes. He's always, um, he's always in, he's always called Ernest Davy DD. But those are honorary degrees. He, he never completed any postgraduate degree. He had three undergraduate degrees and no postgrad degree. So he wasn't a brilliant scholar. He was really good at, he was really good at summarizing things. So he, he could take, theological books and summaries the message of half a dozen books into into an essay he was brilliant at that but he wasn't a great scholar it was because he came to their attention by trying to popularize his theology okay. so there would have been lots of link ups <clears throat> mark there between uh what was going on in the united states of america um yeah. jay grissom machin yeah fundamentalist movement uh, and you know the, the William Jennings Bryan and and that whole thing that went on then, the the publication of the fundamentals, uh, yeah. and and a particular kind of strain of revivalism that you know yeah. was pointed to Charles Finney, which was not only anti intellectual as anti intellectual but anti Westminster Confession even. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, whenever whenever the whenever the few fundamentalists, fundamentalists who left the church formed their own church. They didn't take the Westminster Confession as the confession of their church, um, not for years. And uh, they, they, they stood in the General Assembly and defended the orthodoxy of their view and demanded that the Westminster Confession should be treated with great respect, and yet they didn't respect it or believe it themselves. Um, what, do you call people like, what do you call people like that? My friends in the EPC will be reeling by now. But... <laughs> Listen, they they knew it. They knew it. They'll not be reeling. They, they knew their history. Um, that's why they, they don't talk about it to us. They, they knew their history. They knew their history. It's just the truth. Um, they didn't. They stood on the Westminster Confession, but it was only only uh, only a convenience. To them. They didn't really didn't really think much of it. They were fundamentalists and not very 
thoughtful ones by and large. And um, and the whole the whole Davy Heresy trial, um, the Presbytery of Belfast decided to acquit him before the charges were led before them officially. And you can read the biography, the autobiographies of some of the men in the Belfast Presbytery. They just say we knew that Davy was innocent, so we didn't have to listen to the any of the evidence. And the whole thing was fixed. Um, so he was acquitted in the in the in the presbytery, and then he went to the general assembly. And the um, the fundamentalists, as is their wont, behaved like gorillas let out of the zoo uh, for the day. And they jumped up and down, and they shrieked, and they shouted, and they threw stuff at him. And he stood there quietly and um, treated the general assembly with great respect. And he said a number of things that. The General Assembly understood, said that he had had a conversion experience as a young man, said that he had he had experienced the second blessing. He came out with the whole Keswick stuff. And then he explained his modernist theology in a way that none of them understood. So they heard they heard what he had said about his conversion and they didn't understand anything else that he said. But but they remembered the stuff that he'd said about his conversion and acquitted him for that reason. And, he was as guilty as he was as guilty as guilty as charged. If if nothing else, if nothing else, he was completely obviously guilty of rejecting the Bible as the unique uh, and perfect word of God, the inerrant word of God. There's no question about it. Man was a pantheist, if you read his works, um, but he was willing to sound as though he believed the basics of Christianity in public which is apparently good enough for a Presbyterian minister. Okay. Or at least was then. <laughs> well, well that's, I suppose that's what I want to, uh, to press on a little bit is, <clears throat> I, I mean, so we've mentioned the EPC, okay? So they, yeah. there was a group who left the PCI. Yes. What other lasting impact is there uh, on the PCI from that? Okay. The big impact was the way that ministers withdrew from their people um even as late as i was going through union they were telling us that we shouldn't have friends in our congregations that we should hide our private selves from our congregations they came up with a formula of of subscription to the westminster confession which boils down to you don't have to believe this as long as you sound as though you believe the most important bits of it in public and that, that is that is what the formula of subscription that they came up with meant. And um, they they stopped talking about these things in public. There's evidence that they had sort of clerical clubs where they could join together with each other and with their families and talk freely as long uh, and no one would report these things back to their, to their congregations. So there was essentially a withdrawal of the ministry from their people, which reduced the influence of the ministry over their people, obviously, because they weren't telling the truth in their sermons. They weren't telling them what they believed or what their ideas were, and they were refusing to engage with them as individuals. And that was the that, that in my view is the big inheritance of of the heresy trial. And a really large part of why Presbyterianism today retains the loyalty of a lot of people, but without being able to influence them in the way that we should. 
and that's that, that's my view. That's that, that's what I think the big um, result of the of the Davy trial was. The other one was that everybody decided fundamentalists, that most of the fundamentalists and most of the modernists decided that they weren't going to have a civil war, that they were going to prioritize internal unity over external effectiveness. So they came up with this 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 system that we still have of uh, of committees of the General Assembly where ministers can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and which have no external effect. Ministers have control of the institutions of the church, but the people ignore the institutions of the church as a result. And that's why the reason I wanted to study this, the reason I wanted to study this subject was that I went to Scotland in the mid-90s to study. I was a member of Willie Stills Church in Aberdeen, um, which was a great privilege uh, and a wonderful time in my life. But the church in Scotland was further along the road to numerical decline than it is even in Belfast today at that stage. The churches were closing. um, They were flogging them off. You couldn't turn a corner without seeing a restaurant or a carpet warehouse in a church. And yet people were listening to the General Assembly. Whenever the General Assembly came on, it was front page news in the newspapers. People listened to what it said. They were debating it on the radio. They were debating it on the television. And I was very aware that this was not at all the case in Ireland, that nobody paid any attention to the General Assembly in Ireland. It wasn't discussed in the news in any serious way. It wasn't discussed in congregations. People didn't listen to the pronouncements of the General Assembly. And I thought, why is this? How did we arrive at a place where we've retained numbers really well and we've retained the loyalty of lots of people and yet our institutions do not influence them? And that's why I wanted to look at this period of history. That's fascinating. And I think I think I think I know why now. It's because the church prioritizes internal unity over external effectiveness. They decided that. As long as ministers controlled the apparatus, as long as they controlled the institutions of the church, they wouldn't try and assert themselves. And they came up with these internally focused institutions that we're still stuck with. And you go to presbytery. Presbyteries used to make decisions. People would stand up and say things in presbyteries, and that would be part of a debate, and people would have their minds changed. You know yourself, uh, do you feel that you're part of the decision-making apparatus on a presbytery meeting? I can tell you that ruling elders don't, mm. um, and that's that's part of that's part of the reaction that set in after the heresy trial. So that's a huge. I mean, that's a huge shift from what you're talking about at the at the turn of the century. It is it's an enormous shift, um, and the church getting behind the unionist yeah. movement. Yeah. Wow. So what you, what what you have is you have a crisis of confidence after the First World War because they they react in a really stupid naive way to the First World War, and whenever they saw what a mess they'd made, they had a crisis of confidence, and then there was an external influence of fundamentalism coming into the church, which resulted in an institutional crisis, and those two things together meant that the church decided that unity was more important than effectiveness, okay. and that's the situation that we have inherited from our great grandparents. Hello listener, Jamie here. It was about at this point that we realised our conversation with the Reverend Dr Mark Wilson could run to two episodes. So please tune in again next week to hear why Presbyterianism is far from boring.
you go, ladies and gentlemen. Anybody who thought Irish Presbyterianism was dure and boring just does not know it's Irish. Oh, my goodness. Yeah.